Hello, everyone. A warm welcome to all of you. I'm Hitendra Vadva, welcoming all of you back to the next edition of Inner Sections, where Inner Mastery meets Outer Impact. Our passion is to dissolve boundaries, is to find ways to take things that have been, in a sense, like disconnected and disparate in the world, in our thinking, in our lives, and challenge us to fuse them, to connect them, to find some common ground between them. Because it is when we dissolve those boundaries that the best in us arises. Today, I want to inviting in another very key voice in this journey, Melanie Joy. Melanie got her education from Harvard as a psychologist specializing in communication, social transformation relationships. She's authored five books, and today we are going to make the focus of our conversation two of those books, one of which is on relationships, getting relationships right, how to build resilience and thrive in life, love, and work. She is internationally recognized for a number of things that she has done to really push human consciousness forward in powerful and beautiful ways. And I think you'll see that in some of the conversations that we have with Melanie today. In addition to talking about relationships in a way that you're perhaps already expecting, there is going to be a way that we will push the envelope even further. But instead of like sharing that with you here, let me just kind of like tease you with that idea that somewhere midstream in the conversation, we will pivot and expand it into something perhaps even more transformational in its possibilities. But let's start with the more sort of grounded idea and aspiration for all of us of what is it that we can do in our careers and in our lives today to take a thoughtful look at our relationships and make them more whole, make them more fulfilling, make them more successful, both for us and the other party. So, Melanie, welcome to Intersections. Let's invite you in. Hi, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Our pleasure as well to have you. You know, when I when I was seeing that video that about your work, it was reminding me of a conversation I had. This was with um, the president of a um, you know a college dedicated to um, advancing teaching, and so um, I was very interested at that time into what is happening in K twelve in the school system around helping to take some of the latest science and insights on relationships and make it part of like the journey that our young ones make in school. And it was very interesting because the um, question, you know, that are then posed is like, is there some of this starting to happen in the school system and, and uh, where is it headed? And she looked at me and she smiled and she said, we would love to make time and space for this, but we are under so much pressure to up the reading, writing and rhythmic scores that we just don't have the space and time to do work on some of these other newer human and psychological aspects. And it was very sobering. It was very sobering to hear that. So I loved your phrase, relational literacy. The idea that, yes, there are those other forms of literacy, but there's also this thing on relational literacy. Can you talk on what uh, drew you and to do work on something like relational literacy and why do you think it's really important? Absolutely. And I would say also that, um, you know, the, the education system is, is slowly shifting in a direction where this conversation is starting to happen a bit more. We can learn, children can learn to read and write within the context of relational literacy as well. What they learn to read and write about can be just as important as the reading and writing itself. So as I had mentioned in the video, relational literacy is um, the phrase that I use to describe the understand or to mean the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating. 
And one of the really important reasons to work on understanding relational literacy is because so many of the most serious problems that we experience in our interpersonal lives or in our personal lives, and also globally, as I discussed in the video, um, are problems that arise because we have not learned how to understand healthy ways of relating, and we haven't learned the practical tools to actually engage in healthy ways of relating. So we continue to make choices that harm ourselves and that harm others, and that prevent us from developing these connections that all of us ultimately want and need. There's been you know, a lot of interesting studies recently looking at the science of connection and really discovering that number one, humans are hardwired to feel empathies for, uh, empathy for others. Humans also and some other animals are hardwired to feel empathy empathy for others. So empathy is in many ways our natural state, the state of feeling with. We're also hardwired to seek meaningful connections with others and to avoid the pain of disconnection. And yet so often we engage in the very ways of thinking and behaving that create the disconnections that we want to avoid and that feed some of the pressing problems, many of the pressing problems facing our world today from problematic systems of oppression like sexism, racism, speciesism, and problematic practices like animal exploitation, environmental degradation. Yeah, thank you for that. It's, it's making me wonder, if I'm one of us here who's listening to you, Melanie, and I've had, let's say, a struggle in a certain relationship, maybe with a colleague at work or maybe with someone at home. Is there something you think in the science and practice of relational literacy where it might be possible to shrug off the disappointments and baggage of the past and actually make tangible gains in reinfusing a sense of fulfillment and joy, let's say, in a relationship that I've been struggling with? That's a great question, and the answer is it depends. Often it's not possible, um, and often it's not even desirable to shrug off the past, but rather to look at the past, to face the past, to understand to the best of our ability, to some degree anyway, the past, so that we can use this learning as we move forward. Sometimes the best choice for a relationship moving forward is a choice to end that relationship. Because if you're engaging with a person who is not responding to your attempts to relate in a helpful way, to cultivate healthy connection, that person may not be ready or able to engage with you in a way that's not toxic. So healthy relationships, there's been you know, interesting research looking at attachments, how we form attachments to, to other individuals. Healthy relationships are relationships where we have healthy boundaries, right? Where what this means is that we let ourselves take in information about ourselves, feel an, a sense of attachment to others, but we have healthy boundaries, but we, we don't attach so much that we lose sight of our own selves, our own needs. So when we have healthy boundaries, essentially what this means is that we stay connected with our own truth. We be, we're as clear as possible about what we think and feel. And we're also able to understand other people's truths. We don't look at the world through other people's eyes so much that we lose sight of what we want, think, and feel. And we don't refuse to look at the world through other people's eyes so much that we can't take in feedback or important information. So then we're able to have more healthy attachments and connections with others. Very good. So I think what I'm hearing from you is um, maybe a couple of like core 
principles or pillars, I, I suppose, of your, of your model, which is uh, A, that this is not a prescription to fix every relationship, uh, that there may be situations where one actually has to make a call and move on from, from something where you don't see reciprocity from the other side. But I'm also, I think, hearing from you that um, we have to ask ourselves, am I playing my best game? Is there more that I can bring to the table to um, hold the past in focus, but also you know, rise above and grow in my capacity to, to bring out the best in the other person and me? Uh, that's one phrase I, I use a lot, like bringing out the best in the other person, bringing out the best in yourself. What, what are you doing to, to get there? Sounds like you know, it has a lot to do with certain practices that um, perhaps help you both on the one hand state with your truth, but also respect the other persons. Absolutely. Healthy relational dynamics, right? A dynamic is basically interactions, right? Healthy relational dynamics look the same, whether we're engaging with another individual person, whether we're engaging on a collective level, on a, on a social level, you know, two groups engaging, whether we're relating to other animals, our beloved dog, for example, or beyond that, whether we're relating to the environment, even whether we're relating to ourselves. So the principles and tools for practicing healthy ways of relating look exactly the same regardless as to who you're relating to. This doesn't mean that there isn't a variation. I mean, obviously the way that you're going to interact with your, your companion animal is not exactly the way that you're going to interact with your spouse or your partner. But what it does mean is that the same formula applies to all of our relationships and to every interaction we have when we're paying for our groceries at the, at the grocery store. You know, for example, once we understand this, we can apply this Part of part of relational literacy um, or practicing healthy ways of relating also means practicing compassion, practicing this respect to ourselves so that we want to be our, our best selves, but we also recognize that we are flawed human beings. We're all struggling. None of us has really learned how to do this. So there's a lot of wiggle room we need to have for ourselves and others as we navigate our relationships. But I got very excited in this part of the conversation when you use the word formula. So um, is there a formula for how to thrive and flourish in relationships in, in your eyes? Is there, is there a way that you can help us um, demystify this a little bit? Well, the formula that, that I describe in, in my book is, I mean, it's very, it's very simple. It's a set of principles and then lots of tools for, that, that various people have been working on and developing for, for many years now, which is, you know, the formula is... When we want to create connection, healthy ways of relating or healthy relationships are relationships where people or the individuals feel connected. And again, this also applies to how we relate to ourselves. We can feel more or less self-connected. And I know, Hintendra, you talk about this a lot in your own work. So in order to cultivate this healthy connection, what we need to do is two things, practicing integrity and honoring dignity. So essentially, the formula for healthy relationships is the practice of integrity and the honoring of dignity. And I can break this down and be even more specific about this. Integrity is the integration of core moral values and practices. It's basically walking the walk, right? So the core moral values that have been found to be consistent across human cultures, um, pr the primary human values, um, are compassion or caring and justice or fairness. When we practice these values, again, to the best of our ability, we honor the dignity of others, meaning we perceive others and treat others as though they're not less worthy than we are.
of being treated with respect. So again, healthy relationships are relationships that reflect integrity and that honor dignity. And you know what this feels like because everybody watching here has been engaged in these dynamics and the violation of these dynamics throughout their entire lives. So if you think about, for example, a relationship in your own life that you would consider a really good relationship or a great relationship, chances are that's somebody that you feel a connection with. You feel connected with that person. And chances are you trust that that person will practice integrity towards you, meaning you trust that that person will be caring or compassionate towards you and fair to you. To simplify even further, you trust that that person will treat you with respect, practice the golden rule towards you, that they will, by doing this, they honor your dignity. They're communicating with you that you are no less of an individual than they are. You are no less worthy of being treated with respect than they are. And if you think about the opposite, if you think about a relationship in your own life, that's not a good relationship. Maybe it's like just an online troll that you've encountered. So it's not even like a, a quote unquote real relationship, right? Chances are you have the very opposite experience. Instead of feeling disconnected uh, or connected, you feel disconnected. Instead of you know them treating you with integrity, you know, they're, they're violating their integrity toward you. They're not treating you the way they would want to be treated. And chances are you feel that your dignity is not being honored. Your dignity is being harmed, that they're perceiving you as less than, as less worthy of being treated with respect. So when we practice integrity and honor dignity, we foster healthy connection. When we violate integrity and harm dignity, we create disconnection. There's a lot more that I can say around the periphery of this, but that's really the core right there. Very nice. I, I'm, I'm uh, recollecting some of the work of uh, John Gottman and a community of psychologists um, who've been studying the success or failure of, I think in their cases, marital relationships, if I recall. Although I have found personally a lot of sort of value and application of that work, even in uh, relationships at work you know, and, and beyond. And so I'm curious about sort of what your thoughts are on this. But if I were to take what you were saying and convert it into like one example of like of a practical tool, I found quite, quite helpful, both in my own applications in life and leadership and what we discussed in class. Um, one of them would be this notion of sort of like always scanning to find uh, something to appreciate about the other person so that when they're irritating you and annoying you, you're actually have a different place to go to from where you can approach that relationship from a place of uh, appreciation, which perhaps might be then a precursor to the dignity that you're saying is critical to the formula for success. Okay, can you talk a little bit about sort of, you know, whether it's appreciation or other couple of like practical behaviors, especially in I would say, especially in today's age, you know, how can this re relational literacy help us in COVID times today, given what I'm guessing people are facing in this displacement of um, the amount of time suddenly they're spending much more with certain people, much less with other people, et cetera, the strain, the stress and all of that. So what would be like a couple of practical behaviors to really practice that sort of creating a space for dignity? And, and for personal transformation side of it that you were just, you know, we're also talking about integrity. Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, yeah, John Gottman's work and his work with, with his partner, it's, it's amazing. And they've done some really groundbreaking work. It's important for us to 
really try to stay connected with our empathy, which is what I think that you're you're ultimately suggesting. Because when we lose our empathy for others, it's a lot easier for us to engage in some of these disconnecting behaviors toward others. And, and when we appreciate others, it also helps us to empathize with them. We also have to be careful not to over-empathize with others. So if, if you're in a situation where you're not being respected, if you're in a situation where it's, and I don't mean even just physically abusive, but potentially emotionally abusive. Emotional abuse is, is really, really widespread and often very subtle, virtually invisible to many people. It's uh, empathizing in those situations, situations is actually dangerous. You know, we people who are on the receiving end, abusive or disrespectful behaviors are people who need to often need to feel less empathy in those situations in order to pr protect themselves from further harm. So it's really knowing when to turn on and off the empathy is quite important. And that's something I could speak to um, if you'd like a bit later, but I do want to make sure I address your, your other question, which was how do we navigate relational dynamics in this bizarre time of, of COVID. And I think the first step is for, for everybody to recognize that this is a very, very strange, extremely difficult time. I mean, there's a huge range of experiences. Some people are having a much more difficult time, obviously, than others. But for virtually all of us, our lives have been destabilized in many ways. And in our relationships, we're, we're often now forced to be in situations where we're either too close or not close enough. We're in confinement with one another, or we're unable to be connected or at least physically connected with the people we would want to be connected with. So the first step is recognizing that these are very difficult times and not expecting yourself to be at your best or anywhere close to your best. Because, you know, as we talked about earlier, most of us have never even learned relational skills in, in better times. In normal times, we struggle with relationships and communication. Communication is the primary way we relate, of course. And so one of the things that I've heard from a lot of people um, who I've talked to is is that part of the frustration and stress they're feeling is that they're feeling guilty for not doing better in a situation where it's just so hard for, for many of us, we just really need to, or many people, they just really need to give themselves permission to, to not be, to be very imperfect right now and to have a lot of wiggle room in their relationships. Now, all of the principles for healthy relationships, in particular healthy communication, obviously they apply now more than ever for, for many people. This is a fantastic time to learn to build your relational literacy and your communication skills so that you can navigate these complicated times more, more effectively and more easily. One thing to keep in mind is that, you know, people, one of the things that I have been hearing from people about their relational struggles right now is that a difference in perception about the, the level of risk posed by COVID and to some degree, therefore, the level of um, security measures they should be taking is causing a lot of conflict. Where, for example, you have one person who wants, you know, you're living together and one person wants to be using Purell all the time and to be washing down counters and to be cleaning groceries when they're coming in. And another person says, well, that's going over the top. Don't force me to change my behavior this much, just too much for me. So effective communication skills obviously go a long way. And one point to bear in mind is that when people's needs are in conflict, which is what this is an, uh, an example of, needs being in conflict, 
Needs are not all equal um, or don't have all have equal weight. Needs that are safety needs, meaning what a person needs in order to feel safe and secure, need to be given precedent over other kinds of needs. Otherwise, navigating that relationship will become impossible or difficult, if not impossible. So if, for example, you can make a change that's a lifestyle change that takes you a little bit of effort or maybe even a lot of effort, but the other person who is asking you to make that change is actually going to feel more safe and secure because of it, it's almost a no-brainer. That's a great investment in your relationship account. Now, I gave an example of hygiene needs because that's a common a common difference, but there are lots of different types of, lots of differences that are emerging right now. It's a time where our differences are becoming magnified. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I Actually, as you were speaking, it was, I was just relating it to my own journey in the last couple of months and um, my dynamics, both with um, my colleagues at work and uh, with the family at home and with friends. And um, I think building on what you said, one thing I recognize, in addition to like you're saying, the perhaps differences temperamentally people have towards things like the level of safety precautions one should take. We're also being hit differently, you know, by this big force, you know, right now of the pandemic. And so um, something that I might lose may come across as trivial to you, but it's really major for me or the opposite. Right. And so your point about empathy becomes so so critical in, in a moment like that, right, which is more to pay attention to, um, you know, how the other person is feeling and responding to the transformations, changes, sacrifices, things that are let go of, whether it's a summer vacation, whether it's a you know, little bit of insecurity about the project they're working on or whatever it might be. These, these things can hit different people differently, I suppose. And so recognizing from their standpoint becomes so critical, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and really understanding that people are experience, people are we are so different in so many ways. I mean, we have a lot in common as individuals, uh, individual humans, but we people are wired very differently. I mean, look at introversion and extroversion just as an example. So I have a colleague who's who's very extroverted and who's having a really hard time in lockdown. And I have colleagues who are introverted and they're saying, finally. Finally, I'm getting a break from the world. And there's no right or wrong way to be when it comes to personality and when it comes to temperament. And, and very often, many of the conflicts that we experience in relationships, and again, I'm talking about all kinds of relationships here, not just love relationships. These are you know, relationships between colleagues or leaders and their staff, family members. Many of the problems that we have with relationships come from our belief that differences you know, difference equals deficiency. We assume that because we're different, we're gonna clash. Really what matters is not our differences, it's how we relate to those differences. If we learn to relate to those differences in a healthy way, we learn to really ask ourselves, what does the world look through this other person, like through this other person's eyes to really understand them and really validate their experience, even if it's not ours, even if we don't agree with it. You know, agree with it, meaning even if we don't feel that it's a, a healthy experience, we can really significantly change the quality of our relationships. Wonderful. One of the things that um, uh, I find quite uh, impactful in helping to grow my awareness of others, and I'm trying to practice it more, I'm not always disciplined enough about it, but is it's just this notion of sort of like stepping away from the fray of like one's everyday interactions to create a little bit of an open space for just uh, mutual discovery or check-in as to, hey, how are things going? I may not be seeing you, you're in a different part of the world, 
you're part of my team. We've been talking a lot transactionally about the project or the execution, but uh, let's just step back from all of that. How are you doing? You know, and uh, sometimes it's just um, remarkable how much more insight you get into the larger context and frame that that person is operating from that you had completely ignored so far based on what was going on with you. Um, any other sort of guidance you can give as to um, when, especially in the workplace, people are geographically dispersed, as well as in certain relationships with friends and others where you used to kind of hang out at the local restaurant and now, now you can't. Uh, how people can discover and connect more with what's going on in the other person's world? I mean, the way that many people are already doing it, using these, you know, using technology to stay connected when they can't stay physically connected, and also recognizing the limitations of technology. There have been some interesting articles that have come out recently, um, studies that have looked at why, for example, video conferencing is often very draining for people because it's harder for us to read social cues. Our, our brains have to actually work harder and are trying to fill in the gaps because, you know, sometimes the slightest delay can throw our ability to actually read other people's experiences off. So really, really all of the things, this is, this is sort of the beauty of relational literacy. Once you understand the basic set of principles and tools, you can apply that to everything. And so exactly what you're saying, you know, giving yourself, you know, I don't even want to say permission, the opportunity to perhaps spend more one-to-one -one time with people, I would say, rather than group chats, if you can avoid that, to have your meetings more as one-to-one -one rather than having too many group meetings, pausing and asking people, how are you? Doing the same for yourself. You know, one of the things that, that can benefit all of our relationships, as I said before, our primary relationship, we're always relating to ourselves and our primary relationship is with ourselves and that we are relating to ourselves more frequently than we're relating to anybody else. We relate to ourselves through our self-talk you know, we, most of us have a, a diet. We all have this internal dialogue that's going on all the time. And we relate to ourselves through our life choices. We're always relating to our future self five minutes from now or five years from now. Melanie, on this front of relating to yourself, I found it fascinating. It's funny, I, I've been working on my, my, my book in, in recent days. And uh, we talk in my work about these five core energies, one of which is love. And I think that relates most naturally to this conversation we're having about relationships. It's not just about romantic love, it's about love as in taking joy in, in, in people's joy, which could be as much what you do in the workplace or with clients or others, you know, just taking joy in their joy. And, um, you know, and, and as I was kind of working on that chapter, it did strike me this import, the central significance of making sure that you have a very healthy relationship with yourself to prepare you for the relationship you need to have with the world. And then you say something about how it's actually, you do not need to require that you first love yourself in order to love others. So can you talk about that? Well, we, we all learn, or at least most of us learn this belief. We learn to believe that we can't love others until we love ourselves. I mean, most of us have been have grown up hearing this, but um, I don't know where this idea came from. I don't know if it was ever supported by studies. I don't think so because it's been around for a very, very long time. And, um, and yet we've all just kind of like bought into it as though it's some sort of a universal truth. When we take a more relational view of love and of, of growth and of human and non-human as well, connection, we can recognize that, that we can learn to love ourselves 
through loving others. We don't have to be, you know, we're, we're, we're social animals. We're not meant to exist in isolation. Feminist psychologists back in, I think it was the 1960s, really started advocating, 60s and 70s, advocating for a more relational approach to understanding human psychology and to development. And said, you know, we, we need to not like look at people as though we're islands unto ourselves. We don't develop, for example, psychological problems generally in isolation of our relationships. We're relational beings. We, we grow and we heal and we get harmed in relationship to others. And so, you know, many people can test, testify to the experience of never having felt that they loved themselves, but became loved by their newborn baby or by their partner. They, they fell in love with the person who became their great love and their life partner. And they learned to love themselves through looking at themselves through that other's eyes. And they learned to love themselves because they started practicing the principles of loving or healthy relationships towards someone who they valued enough to do that. And that taught them how to practice these principles and then they could apply them to themselves. So we don't need to love ourselves before loving others. We can learn to love through loving and being loved. Uh, it's very thought-provoking, very thought-provoking. I'm going to take that as my like key reflection for, for the day. Thank you. Melanie, here is kind of like where we are in the series of conversations we've had around this theme of relationships. So as I was telling our friends, a couple of weeks ago, I had Raghu Krishnamurti from GE, and he really helped us focus on thriving and flourishing in the workplace, those relationships. Then Jan came and expanded that lens in some ways to like all of humanity through that like amazing example of Mother Teresa. And then you're bringing us a little bit closer to home, to family relationships, but also you know relationships at large in, in the workplace and, and beyond. And then even deeper within to kind of like what's our reflection on our relationship with ourselves. So we've been going a little bit deeper, but now I want to take another part of this um, very innovative work that you've been doing to advance human consciousness, which is to expand the lens even beyond, even beyond humanity. And so um, can we pivot a little bit to some of that really path-breaking thinking and thought leadership you put out there? And can I, can I just take a minute to like share with people what, what you've done and then open it up for a little conversation with you? Absolutely. Okay, so let's do that, folks. Here is uh, an example of some of this other work that has been spawned by Melanie's journey. There is a, a book that she wrote which really caught my eye, and it's called Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism. Yuval Harari, who's uh, you know a very preeminent thinker as well of our times uh, with his work on sapiens, for example, and beyond, has called it an important and groundbreaking contribution. This whole sort of theme or idea about carnism is something that uh, you, Melanie, have uh, played a pioneering role in sort of like putting out there into the human discourse. And it's something that I'm seeing more and more come up in web searches as well. And so um, talk to us a little bit about what what is carnism and what got you interested and drawn to this this field well thank you for that information and that introduction this really emerged out of my own journey and earlier in the show i was talking about how you know the way that we relate healthy relationships really whom we're relating to all all living beings and you know in my journey like many people in the in the west in particular but around the world i, I grew up with with a dog who i loved who i practiced i would say healthy ways of relating towards i would never want to harm my dog i would never want to cause my dog suffering um, i always wanted to be kind to my dog 
I wanted to treat my dog fairly and, you know, treat my dog the way that I would wish my dog would treat me if he were in the position of having more power. And, you know, I cared about animals in, in general, like many people do. And I also grew up contributing to a system that I neighbor, I later called carnism, which I'll talk about in just a moment, contributing to the system that causes such incredible, intensive and, and extensive harm to animals that it was, it is absolutely mind boggling to think about it. Um, and this is the system of, of animal agriculture, of course. I grew up eating meat, eggs and dairy. I was the meat lover's pizza girl at, at Domino's Pizza. And I just, I never made the connection over so many years, you know, that I could be petting my dog with one hand while I ate a pork chop with another. You know, a pork chop that had come from an animal who had once been as intelligent, obviously, and as, as sensitive as my dog. And it wasn't until I ended up getting sick back in 1989. So I was 20, right, it's a long time ago, I was 23 years old at the time. And um, from eating a contaminated hamburger that wound me in the hospital on intravenous antibiotics. And at that point, I just stopped eating meat because I was disgusted by it. But what happened was it led me to want to learn about my new diet. And at the time, that was vegetarian. It became vegan quickly thereafter, which led me to learn information about animal agriculture. And what I learned really shocked and horrified me. But what shocked me perhaps even more was that nobody I talked to about this was, was willing to hear what I had to say. Well, you know, it's, a, it's such a personal journey nutrition, one's dietary choices, one's lifestyle, one's um, model of economy and how we work in society. And you're walking into that terrain, which is so deeply personal to uh, so many of us. And uh, we operate probably from different lenses. Is there a common ground that we can find on this topic? Are there some core principles that might sort of appeal to all of us? As to, you know, we might make different choices, but that we come from a place of a common, if you want to call it like um, laws of human nature. You know, that's how I like to think about it. You know, have you discovered some laws of, of, of life, perhaps, that are more than just purely about humanity, but the relationship between humanity and, and other forms of life? Well, absolutely. In in my work with through my German journey, what I really wanted to understand was I I mean, I have my family and friends were like myself. They were rational thinkers, they're empathic people who cared. I said we're hardwired to feel empathy for others, and that includes empathy for other animals. And so what we have in common is that the vast majority of us really do care. We really do care about our impact on others, including our impact on other animals. And because we've been born into this system of carnism, which is basically the, ascent, the, the opposite of veganism. Carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. It basically conditions us so that we distort our perceptions and disconnect from our natural empathy for animals. And then we don't feel any discomfort or really think about the reality of what we're doing when we're eating animals. And so what we have in common is that we share, we are hardwired to seek connection with others. We're hardwired to feel empathy for others, including other animals. And most of us really do want to make choices that reflect our integrity, that, that are in, choices of integrity that reflect compassion and justice. And we simply have not learned about the ways that we've been conditioned to not reflect on our food choices. But we can all undo this conditioning and we can all move along the spectrum in a way that helps us to contribute to a world that is more relational 
relational in a way that includes other animals. Yeah, there's been a growing kind of, I think, discussion, I guess, in the world, right, around um, uh, what are the right food choices. Sometimes it's approached from a health angle, sometimes from a ecology, a global warming angle, sometimes from an animal rights angle and, and beyond. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you're living in Germany. Uh, you're from the United States. You're spanning, you know, multiple cultures. I go back and forth a lot between, you know, the U.S. and India as like home stays for me. And then, of course, like you travel around the globe, you know, to serve serve uh, clients and then at Columbia itself we have a very international uh, community of, of students who come from everywhere and uh, you know I'm guessing you've seen that too which is kind of like exactly like the title of your book which is in different communities and cultures they have a heightened sensitivity towards how they take care of certain animals and uh, how they see other animals are just uh, as, as food, you know, or as um, uh, sources of other kinds of conveniences in life. And uh, one contrast, for example, I make is how, um, you know, in the U.S., there's been um, at times a little bit of a just kind of a quizzical press about how India is so sensitive to matters that relate to beef. And, uh, and you know, it's such a core part of the diet in mainstream USA. And of course, I grew up in an India where, for the most part, beef was, for a large section of society, something that you just never went anywhere close to. And then, and then I just ran a thought experiment in my mind. And the thought experiment I ran is, what if in the United States, they were focused on a community that was uh, habitually and at large scale eating dogs? And what would be the reaction of a typical person who've grow who's grown up in America to, to that? And how would the person from that other culture who finds it very normal to eat dogs have felt about, about this, this person from this other culture who's getting very sensitive to eating dogs? I mean, like, why are you so sensitive to eating dogs? And I was just saying, like, that's how you know, some of those news reports were, I think, coming across to me as to rather than empathize and attune and connect with, okay, how have you been brought up? How have you lived your life? What has caused you operate with such empathy towards cows that uh, that we have towards dogs, you know, let's say in, in, in America and beyond. So these, these are very sensitive and emotional questions and laden with the risk of perhaps a lot of judgment and all that, which is uh, not where I think you're taking it is. But um, I just want to sort of like uh, recognize that um, there is the need to slow down our thinking and our emotional response, isn't it? And just taking your message and your ideas and thoughts into a space of just non-judgmental kind of processing and analyzing and batting around and, and then perhaps emerging with some new insight or conclusion about how am I growing from, from this reflection, I guess. Yes, and, and, and that's a big part of the reason that I wrote my book. I didn't want to write a book um, simply about why people shouldn't eat animals. I wanted to write a book about why do we eat animals in the first place when doing so is very much against um, you know, our, our actual feelings about animals in general and contributes to, to many serious problems in the world. So really understanding the system that is carnism, that, that we're born into and that deeply conditions us so that we think, feel, and act in certain ways, you know, can really help us to recognize and feel compassion for ourselves as we begin to reflect and ask ourselves, okay, how can I make food choices? You know, how can I make my food choices more freely? And this is really the goal of my work, is to raise awareness of carnism so that people can, in fact, make their food choices more freely. Because without awareness, there is no free choice. Unless we're aware of how we have been conditioned to distort our perceptions in a particular way and disconnect from our empathy in, for, for specific types of animals, 
we're not making our choices freely and everybody needs and deserves to know the truth, not just the truth about animal agriculture, but the truth about carnism, which is this system that is so deeply socialized, all of us. And then we become more empowered to really think about how we want to be and how we want to move through the world. I, I think I think a fair amount of what you're saying is around more self-awareness, isn't it? More self-reflection, more of a um, connecting with what is stirring within you at a deeper place when you engage and relate with you know aspects of life beyond purely the human to human exchange, isn't it? We can connect this conversation you're having about humanity's connection and relationship with with animal life to to just to, to just as a natural extension of what we were just talking about as relationships. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Absolutely. And this is not to say, you know, that we have to be perfectionistic, you know, all of us can move. It's, it's, I think it's helpful to see carnism and veganism on a spectrum. And in many ways, it's not where you are on that spectrum, but it's what direction you're heading in. So you can ask yourself, how can I move along the spectrum in a direction that helps me to reduce my negative impact on other animals, also on my body? And we can also choose to be, you know, allies in transforming carnism. People often think, oh, either you have to be fully vegan and you're part of the solution, or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem. You can also be an ally. You can use your influence to support the transformation of carnism in whatever way you're capable. I mean, some of the people who interview me for, for papers that or articles that reach sometimes millions of readers. They're not vegans themselves, but they really want to use their influence to transform the system. Some of the people who donate to my organization Beyond Carnism are, they're not vegan, but they they recognize these problems and they want to use their influence to, to help transform a very problematic system. Talk to us a little bit about sort of um, what, um, what some of the pitfalls are in the pursuit of this uh this growth that you were just talking about that we can all go through. For instance, you talk in your book about carnistic defenses. Yeah. So so what I talk about in my book is really the psychology of eating animals. How is it that those of us who are compassionate people end up supporting an industry that is cruel? And I talk about how carnism uses these psychological defense mechanisms. Carnism is structured like other problematic isms, such as sexism, for example, and it distorts our perceptions so that we don't recognize that we're making harmful choices when we're making harmful choices. So, and therefore we get disconnected from our empathy. So for example, carnism teaches us to see farmed animals as abstractions, as lacking any individuality or personality of their own. So we learn to think, for example, that a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. It's much easier to support violence toward individuals if we don't see them as individuals. We don't think of pigs the way we think of dogs, for example. We don't get outraged at the treatment of billions of pigs the way that we get outraged at the treatment of, say, for example, hundreds of dogs or thousands of dogs somewhere else in the world. As, as you pointed out earlier, in some places in the world, dogs. In some places in the world, people eat animals or don't eat animals like cows, like in India. And the types of animals that we or don't eat have very little, if anything, to do with who and how those animals are and everything to do with how we think of those animals, how we perceive those animals. That's powerful. You know, uh, it reminds me of a story. 
there was a, a dear friend of mine, Mette, and she shared the story. She said she was interacting with this one person and she could see that he was, you know, in his case, uh, a vegetarian. And she was kind of like drawn to some of his ideas and thoughts. And, and so she was getting mentored by him. And then after this one conversation, she looked at him and said, but don't expect me to be a vegetarian. And he looked at her and he said, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, but can I ask you to do one thing, which is between this meeting and the next time I meet you, anytime you encounter an animal, can you just, can you just like look into its eyes? And she said, that's it. <laughs> you know, a uh, short while later, I just gave up. I just gave up eating meat. So um, that said, I'm also intrigued about how one can continue to expand that set of possibilities about what one considers as important relationships, not just with our loved ones, not just with people at work, not just with humanity at large. You already extended that lens into the animal community. And I wonder if we should, as we close this session out, expand it even further to all of nature, perhaps even, even the universe. Is there something in this pandemic moment that is actually awakening us up to the need to really be thoughtful and sensitive to humanity's relationship with life and with nature more broadly, right? The ecology, the environment and all of that. And um, yeah, I wonder what you think. I mean, is that is that something that you had much intrigue and interest in to like even go beyond just humanity and animals? Well, I mean, clearly climate change is one of the most pressing issues, not the most pressing issue of, of, of our age. And it requires and deserves immediate attention. And so when we ask ourselves about how we're relating to the environment, we can ask ourselves absolutely the same question. You know, when I make this choice, this is really what it comes down to whoever you're relating to. And we're constantly making choices. We're constantly engaging in behaviors that impact others and that impact ourselves. The nice thing is that healthy relational behaviors are always, they're win-win. They're in the best interest of the greater good, of the integrity of, of the whole or of the system. When we make choices, we can ask ourselves, is this choice going to cause harm? or not. Now, obviously, there are naughty questions to unravel, and there are a lot of nuances to consider. But we can ask ourselves, does this choice that I'm going to make reflect my integrity? Does this reflect integrity? Am I practicing compassion and fairness or justice right now in making this choice? And we're not always going to make perfect choices because we're very flawed human beings who have been born into a deeply dysfunctional relationally dysfunctional world. We really have to accept that. Nevertheless, we can work to bring integrity more fully into our choices, you know, on an ongoing basis. And the less compartmentalized we are, you know, when we're not treating our coworkers differently than our boss, differently than our partner, differently than the animals with whom we share the planet, the less compartmentalized we are, the more integrated we are. It's a holistic way of being. We practice kindness, and respect toward everybody who comes into our orbit. And this frees up a tremendous amount of psychological energy for ourselves because we don't have to continue to stay, to block out unpleasant truths, the consequences of our choices and the relational fallout from us not being kind. This has been very illuminating. I think uh, there are just so many powerful ideas that you have just started to spark in us. And my encouragement to our audience is going to be to rather than jump to one conclusion or another, to really reflect on a couple of the key themes that you may have you know, found striking a chord with you. Just to reflect on them, let them sort of marinate within you 
and then draw, in a sense, your conclusions coming from your own voice within. I am guessing, Melanie, that that would be very consistent with your own message. It's not about a single prescription as much as a invitation to like awaken to more conscious living. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us for this, Melanie. Let's allow Melanie to kind of make her way back. And uh, thank you so much for joining us for what has been very thought-provoking, very, very heartfelt. Really appreciate the great work you're doing, Melanie. And thank you, Hintendra. It's been really wonderful being here. I appreciate it so much. Thank you as well.